This is Priya Malik, Managing Director at Step Global Group. And this is Abtin Baziri, Managing Director at Brevet Capital Management. Welcome to the Investment Migration Report. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to be investment, tax, or other professional advice or a recommendation to buy or refrain from buying any security, product, or service. The views and opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the views or opinions of our employers. Today, we're joined by David Herson, the founder and principal of the David Herson Partners Law Firm. Welcome, David. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, both you and Priya. So, David, I know you've been involved in the EB-5 business for a very, very long term. And I even have heard rumors that you may have filed the very first I-526 application ever filed with the USCIS. Do you mind just taking a moment telling us about your experience, how you got involved in this crazy world of EB-5 and, and, and the history? Sure. Well, I happened to be visiting the Senate in June of 1990. We were on a seminar and we just took a walk across. We were in Washington and there debating whether or not to have EB-5 in the Judiciary Committee was the late Senator Kennedy and our current president. And they were debating whether or not to uh, have an EB-5. Well, eventually it did pass and that was in November of 1990. And by January, I had filed, if not the first, one of the very first cases uh, in EB-5 in the direct investment, uh, direct employment model. And we had also had these people back within six months. It was quite amazing when you compare it to what's going on today. So that's perfect. This is really timely because obviously the um, original EB-5 program, the direct model, is still available for investors, um, whereas on June 30th, the RC program, the Regional Center program, has expired. So could you tell us a little bit more about how is it still possible for investors to invest in the EB-5 program post-June 30th? Okay. Well, the 1990 program for direct investment was a permanent program, whereas when the Regional Center program was brought in in 1992, that was a pilot program and it has been extended almost 25 times so far in all of this time and it was due to expire or uh, sunset again on june 30th of this year two days before we were expecting an extension for five years and one senator got up and objected and based on the rules of the senate the bill failed so it's still going through the normal system because that, that particular vote was an expedited system and it will eventually come up again. But I do believe that there may be some changes in the works and there's some rumors about that uh, perhaps before the end of September, there will be an agreed to change in the whole EB-5 program. And uh, we can talk a little more about the rumors later. Uh, I don't know what Aptin and Priya might have heard uh, earlier today. Sure. So, David, in your experience, you've obviously done many, many filings over the years, both the direct and indirect uh, program. For our audience that maybe knew your TEB-5, do you mind just taking a couple of minutes explaining what the main differences are between the direct and the regional center program? Oh, certainly. The direct program was the basis on which the whole of the EB-5 program is is, uh, set. It was based itself on the Marriage Fraud Act of 1986. So some of the things that were carried through, like the conditional residence, is also a provision of the Marriage Fraud Act. 
some of the provisions that were carried through didn't quite make sense, but they've adjusted a little as we've gone along the way. So the provisions there were basically you had to invest in a new enterprise, you had to invest clean money with a pure report or report on pure source and path of funds. You had to hire on payroll at least 10 full-time legal workers at least 35 hours per week. And you had to show this payroll. Just as an aside, we've always advised direct investment projects to use the government program called E-Verify, which means that each employee that is hired is probably documented in advance as being a lawful employee because we had problems where we'd file the cases, file for removal of condition, and immigration would come up and say, well, three out of your ten are illegal, and that killed the case. So to avoid that, you will use E-Verify, and then the government will not and certainly cannot object if we show them the proof through the E-Verify program. Then uh, it also had two levels. It was a $1 million basic level for investment, and it was a 500000 in what was called a targeted employment area, broken into two parts. One was the rural, and there are certain areas regarded as rural in the U.S., and the second was high unemployment. That had to be 150% of the national average. So if the natural average of unemployment was, say, 6%, anything over 9% could qualify for the lower investment amount. So now we move on to 1992 when the uh, regional center program was brought in. It was brought in because the reception of the direct program was very slow. To create 10 workers out of $500,000 is quite a challenge, but certainly not impossible, as we've seen over the years. With this, they created the uh, indirect and induced counting of the employees, and this was done by using uh, economic matrices, where we usually use an economist to use this, uh, this program, where the input was the amount of money and what was being done in terms of perhaps say construction development and then the revenue. And this gets converted through those programs into job counts. So the final report of an economist will give you the number of jobs this investment will create for that particular location. And you'll find it is substantially more than actual jobs that are hired in the, in the place concerned. Example, a hotel may have 500 people. But the cost of the construction and then the revenue will give you 1,500 people. So therefore, you can get 15 investors instead of five investors. And that's the multiple. It's just an example. Uh, there's some very, very uh, much bigger ones than that. Uh, I can give examples later if anyone wants. Um, the other issue was uh, that just about everything remained the same as the direct investment. So really... The main thing for purpose of discussion is you could use indirect employment accounts. So as you mentioned, the um, the investment amount currently is one million or five hundred thousand, depending on the geographical area of the investment. Um, and at one point it did go up to one point eight million and nine hundred thousand. Um, however, now it's back down to 501 million. So can you discuss how this all happened and where we are today because of everything that's been going on in EB-5? Sure. It's very exciting to be an immigration lawyer these days. Um, in June of 1919, excuse me, in November of 1919, a regulation was put into effect by immigration that created 
the higher amount of um, investment, moving the 500,000 to 900,000 and the $1 million to 1.8 million. Um, there was also some variances in how the calculation of the target employment areas was done, making it a little more accurate to the real world as opposed to an unlimited chain of census tracts running 100 miles away from the project, giving you the average that you were looking for, for the 150% of national average. Under that program, only census tracts that actually touched on the project census tract could be counted to create the average. So it did reduce the amount of uh, what the Congress was called gerrymandering. Um, the examples were New York, where these major developers were claiming to be in high unemployment areas, which uh, the um, Congress found uh, not not true in reality because you, you can't get anyone to, to take a job in New York when it's busy because there's no one available. So high unemployment is not an issue for New York um, City. Um, then there was the one we had in Beverly Hills, which was a Waldorf hotel. They took the one census tract next door and it created the average. However, Congress decided how can a Beverly Hills real estate property have high unemployment? And that's where they carried their mantle to, to bring in this change. So the change was uh, more restrictive. Then came along the court case. A, a company called Bering um, filed a lawsuit against the government saying your regulation was improperly brought into effect because the person who signed it wasn't authorized to sign. It went through the whole court system and as late as the last second to last week in June of this year, the court found that that regulation was invalid and therefore the pre-November uh, pre 1990 regulation was brought back into play. So we are currently in the pre-June 1990 original 500,000 $1 million and the much more flexible way of counting the um, TEA and calculating that. Um, also on June 30th, the regional center program came to its final end and we're waiting and hoping that at some time, as I mentioned earlier, it will be uh, brought back again. However, for the moment, all we're left with is the permanent original direct hiring pro program and that has attracted a lot of interest at this stage and a lot of people are filing these, we're filing a lot of these cases and there's no reason why they should not be approved and I'm sure we'll get into more detail on the structure uh, a little later. Thank you. So we've been also seeing that there's a rush of investors who are coming in and trying to apply under the direct program because that is all that's available right now and it's available at 500,000. It's a little bit uncertain as to when that price might change again and I think people are trying to take advantage of that opportunity. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what you foresee happening in terms of the price? Will it go up again? Is there going to be uh, a change in regulation coming up soon? And do you feel that this window of opportunity at 500,000 is a fairly short window? We advise clients that this is a closing window of opportunity, but we cannot tell them exactly how long it will be open. So if anyone is interested in this program, our advice is get a move on, do it, or you won't save $400,000, you'll pay maybe an additional 
400,000 to get in. Um, the expectation in the industry, and uh, we had the expectation that the program would be extended for five years late June, and it didn't. But the current expectation is that before the end of, November, uh, of September, the some form of extension of this bill will be attached to the appropriations bill and will be carried through as it had been in all prior years. This is also an unknown fact to be dealing with Congress, and there's no knowing which way it'll turn along the way. We know that we have bipartisan support in both houses on the EB-5 program. The uh, government and the Congress see it as a program where jobs are created, a lot of money is brought into the country as foreign direct investment, and this whole thing is at zero cost to taxpayers. So it's a total win-win-win, and there's no reason to avoid it. Yes, there's been some fraud, but that has been minimal in relation to the whole program. But what happens, as is normal with the news press and the media, is that they will publicize only the bad things. Nobody will tell you that it's another sunny day in Southern California. They'll only tell you that there's a hurricane going on in some other area, because that's what's the situation with EB-5. It's good. It's an excellent program. I always advise people to use it if there's no other EB-5, uh, no other immigration program available. It's an excellent tool, and I've been using it consistently since um, the beginning of 1991. And we've had rushes of hundreds of cases a month, and then we've had quiet times when there was litigation and uncertainty. And this has been a um, swing back and forth through the, through all of these years. At the moment, direct investment is hot, and that's what we're getting a lot of inquiry on. And the inventory on the direct investment is fairly low. So there are some that are out there, and I'm sure this program has introduced some of them to you, or will do. And uh, so, yes, uh, contact them, and they will refer you to direct programs that might be available for your or your client's investment. So David, I know I've, speaking, I've spoken with many immigration attorneys in the last month or two that are getting a, a lot of cases uh, on the direct side. Are you seeing uh, many uh, cases being filed on the direct side in the last month since the, the program, um, I guess, went down to 500,000 and the Art Regional Center program expired? I probably have at least two or three consultations a day on the issue. Uh, it's got out to the, to the public, the investment public, and they are calling in on it. They want to know how they can save $400,000. This is a big deal. Also, the rumor is that the new law might come in at a slightly lower amount. Instead of 900000 the lower amount might be 800000 And instead of $1.8 the lower amount might be $1 million. Again, this is negotiation, discussion, potentially hearsay, potentially rumor. And so I don't want to endorse it other than say it's really a possibility. So as you've mentioned, there's a lot of rumors going around as to what will happen with EB-5. I've had a lot of regional centers contact me who are preparing for what they say is going to be a short-term authorization at 500000 until around December, um, similar to the short-term reauthorization we had a few years ago. Do you think that's something that's on the table, that's possible? Is that something you've heard about? Or do you think that the reauthorization will sort of be a clean reauthorization on September 30th? 
It's, it's absolutely possible, knowing that we can't control which way Congress moves. If they get their act together and get this new regulation in place, we won't get that. We'll get the higher amount again, but at a lower level. If they don't get that and there is an extension, um, the regional centre projects will have a field day until they do bring in the new regulation. And once again, you've got so many factions pulling it in different directions that if we get that extension at 500, who knows if they'll ever get another regulation through, so that 500 may run on for longer than until the end of the year. The end of the year is a pure guesstimate. So, so David, could you please um, explain to the audience, especially uh, ones that are maybe newer to EB-5, in terms of how the jobs calculation is different on a direct program versus the regional center program, and maybe spend a couple minutes going into detail on, on what that means on the regional center program that can't be used on the direct program. All right, I'll start with the regional center program. I mentioned earlier that you can use indirect and induced jobs by reason of what that project generates based on the cost of the project, the expenses going into it, whether it's renovation, construction, uh, factories, whatever it might be. And then they look at the revenue. And these two items have bases in these different matrices to create jobs. So the number of jobs is created indirectly. And as I also mentioned earlier, the number of jobs is not anywhere close or related to the actual jobs that may be hired in the particular project. So this is your indirect, and that's the major difference of the regional center. The direct hire is somewhat different because you have to hire 10 legal full-time workers on payroll and 35 hours a week as a minimum. You can use some part-time workers doing the same job. However, I always avoid it because immigration have convoluted methods of the calculation and you're never certain that they're going to agree with your presentation. So as far as possible, avoid sharing jobs with part-time people. Stick to full-time 35 hours a week. If that's not possible, we will look at it and we'll try and do our best to present the arguments that immigration give back to us to persuade them that more than one person creates a single full-time job. Um, the, the, the people, as I say, have to be on payroll. They need to be hired within 30 months of the approval of the first stage of this immigration uh, filing, which is called an I-526. And that approval can take a couple of years to come through under present circumstances. We do expect it to become shorter time. Um, so you've got a lot of time to hire the people. There's no requirement to have them all on payroll the day you file. And this is often a concern of people who are just starting up. So we then put in a detailed business plan, what's called a comprehensive business plan, under the requirements of the matter of how, which is a precedent decision, which everyone follows. It's very detailed as to what you have to say in your business plan, and you have to meet those requirements going forward. But if you can meet those requirements, um, your hiring can be done over a pretty long period. And I also have the view, and this may not agree with every lawyer, that you even have longer than that because you only really have to show the government you've hired your 10 workers per investor at the time of filing to remove the condition, the I-829, which is the third stage in the immigration process. The middle stage, just so it closes the loop, is either the individuals go to a U.S. consul 
at an embassy or a consulate for an interview, and then they get admitted as conditional permanent residences. Or if they're legally in the country and qualified, they can go through what's called an adjustment of status in the country. And when that's approved from that day, their two-year conditional residence begins. And by the way, to remove that condition, you have a window of three months before the end of the two years, that's the 21st month to the 24th month, to file a substantial substantive application on a form I-829, and that'll be adjudicated. The major issues you have to prove is A, you did the investment. B, you never took any of your principal back. Even if it's lost 100% because of the project, you never took any money back. You can get income. In other words, you can get a return on your investment, but you cannot get a return of your investment. And the second major issue is that the jobs have been created. So if it's with the direct, you've got to show your payroll records and all of that stuff. And I mentioned E-Verify earlier. I would always put up the forms called an I-9, which is verification of employment of each person when they are hired. And it's a compulsory requirement of every employer when somebody's brought on board. And the second is the added uh, security that you will then have called E-Verify and the document that the system produces confirming the authorized work of that particular worker. So those are the two things, money and jobs. You also throw in things like uh, uh, financials and other information to show it was a real project that was running and ongoing, and uh, that uh, that takes care of that program. We've had very few denials. It's usually uh, to do with going back into lawful source of funds, and they make some challenge there. Most times it's not to the project. The projects generally, if they are pretty standard, and have created the jobs, uh, either you have the payroll or you have the expenses and the income and you will get your confirmation through an economist. So we don't have a lot of problems with IA29s. I think that more than 90% of them are approved. So David, you did a great job explaining to our audience from a legal standpoint, the differences between a direct and indirect, but there are definitely business differences. And for example, if you're building an uh, apartment project, multifamily project with $100 million in cost, uh, a, a multifamily project may only have 10 or 12 employees, direct employees. So it may not be the right fit because, you know, you may only be able to raise $500,000 for that $100 million project, which would be insignificant. So it wouldn't be the right fit. But there are different type of projects, for example, restaurant projects, manufacturing, or other projects that are capital intensive in the healthcare industry that may be the right fit. So, you know, can you tell our audience maybe just what type of projects you see that work for, in, for the direct program that, that are more uh, labor intensive, that who have a lot of W-2 employees that can be a right fit for the direct program? Yes, certainly. Um, the, the project you mentioned, healthcare and the, this type of thing, yes, this is high intense uh, employment. Um, we've also seen call centers is a way people like to go because call centers have potentially hundreds of employees in a fairly small operation uh, in terms of capital expense. The employees have to be on payroll. You have to count them by heads, not by calculation through formulae. So your difference is, as Aptin mentioned, you either have the people there and you can count 10 per investor or you don't, and then you need the regional center to use the indirect, but there's no regional center at the moment, so you are left with the only option, and that is direct investment. 
So you have to look for investments that are direct. For example, as I said, restaurants. Now, these have to be new projects. You cannot go into an existing restaurant unless you can prove certain things, which is more the exception to the new rule, namely that you are saving a troubled business. In other words, this business has lost a lot of money. There's a certain formula to that, and therefore it will qualify for EB-5 Direct. And in addition on saving a troubled business, you'll be able to count any employees that are left on payroll and then move them up into counts of 10 based on the number of investors. Then there is the um, expansion. Any business started after uh, November of 1990 that expands by at least 10% of employees or at least 10% of capital with a minimum of the 500,000 or a million and a minimum of 10 employees can come in as an existing business. So the expansion method. But basically, people look to new new projects. New doesn't mean it's new today. It might have been new six months ago, and you're able to account that because you can show certain things the way the financing was done and that the EB-5 money is there to take out temporary or bridge financing. So that's one of the ways that that can go. And David, one of the main pushbacks we get from clients um, is the fact that the EB-5 program is an at-risk program in terms of investment. Do you in any way view the direct program as safer than the regional center program in terms of an investor having more control over their money? Or do you believe that the lack of guarantee and the risk factor is the same whether someone invests in the regional center program or the direct program? Okay, thank you. Firstly, I'd say that no two projects are the same. So each one has its own level of risk. They all have to be at risk under law, but your level of risk is what you assess by doing your due diligence. So a very solid direct hire project could be much safer than a regional center project. So you have to look at each project on its own merits. Um, control over your money, well, depending on how that direct project uh, has been structured. I have on occasion structured direct through multiple chain of grocery stores, as an example, and it looked exactly like a regional center project, except that it was direct and it was structured to meet all the tests of direct. For example, all the employment was in sub-companies that were 100% owned by the entity into which the EP5 investors invested. If these subsidiaries are 100% owned, you count their employees. If they're 99% owned, you cannot count their employees. So there's very careful structuring and rules to follow in doing this. This is something, don't try this at home. It's really one of those more difficult things to do, and you should use competent, experienced counsel in this regard. Um, then you can get the one-off. So the guy's going to set up his own 7-Eleven. Well, there he's going to show up to work every day. He's going to run it in all likelihood. And there he has a lot more control because he's seeing what profits are being made and what losses are taking place and how he can immediately shore them up if he thinks, sees things going south. Um, on the bigger ones, there's no requirement for him to be there on a daily basis. It's the same as a regional centre. He can be there to meet the minimum requirement of management set forth in the regulations, namely that if you're a limited partner or a member of an LLC and you have certain authorization under the uh, management and organization of that entity, uh, you've met the employment 
the hands-on requirement. So you could be living in another state and still meet this requirement. So one of the rumors that goes about, and it's incorrect, is that if it's direct, you have to show up to work every day and work there. And no, that is not true. You can do it exactly as you would have done in a regional center where you have people running your operation for you. So David, one of the requirements of the EB-5 program in the initial bill is that the investors' funds have to be at risk, which means that they have to be an equity investor. But in a lot of regional center programs, uh, they actually convert that equity investment into a debt instrument by having the equity invested in a special purpose entity, or SPV, which its only uh, job will be to lend out to the entity. So essentially, they convert equity to debt, and, and, and a lot of investors like that. The investors prefer have the debt investments. Is that kind of the similar uh, process and in, in, in direct investments, or do you see a lot of direct investments where investors are actually interested in having equity, true equity investment in the projects? Um, the preference has been, particularly through the uh, immigration uh, representatives or agents abroad, to do the loan model. A loan model is unusual in direct investments. It's generally a direct equity investment. However, as I mentioned earlier, with the chain of grocery stores, we created a loan model in a direct investment program, so it is possible. You've got to look at the project, you've got to look at the people involved, you've got to look at the cooperation of the um, operators, and you can do it either way. But you will find, as a matter of course, you will be doing a direct equity investment into the um, project, which is doing the hiring. And in the EB-5 program, can the investment capital ever be guaranteed, whether direct or regional center? Um, the law says you may not use the assets of the enterprise as a guarantee or security for your investment. So uh, you can't borrow the money and then use it as security. You can't use it to guarantee back your investment. You can't use the assets like you're going to get a free condominium from the building at the end of the day. That is not lawful. Any attempt to get a condominium at the end of the day has to be open market and arm's length and fair market value. Uh, it can't be a condition of the investment. It can just be a side benefit. And you have to be very cautious there. Um, guarantees. Any effort to show that the project guarantees to pay you back at the end of the day is not lawful because it takes away the at-risk issue and the immigration then treats that whole investment as a loan rather than an equity investment. So generally, no guarantees at risk. Do your due diligence to reduce the risk to its minimum. Thank you. So David, when you first got involved in the EB-5 program, there were probably only one other con a competing program, the Canadian program, and then you know, slowly other programs crept up, you know, the UK and Australia program. Today, I believe there's north of uh, 40 different programs. And, you know, they all have different requirements. Some of them, you know, you could qualify by virtue of buying a home or a condo or real estate. And I think a lot of investors have that misconception that they can somehow buy property and that could, you know, qualify them for, for the EP-5 program. And then, you know, that and then the, the other issue is, you know, the, the, the issue of a guarantee of a loan. So can you talk about that and, and, and the requirements uh, of, of, of the job creation and how, um, you know, condo development or buying a condo or buying a house doesn't really qualify? And, and also the same thing with securities. People assume that if you buy a certain amount of securities, you can qualify 
because you meet, meet the minimum investment threshold. But can you can you talk about that in, in, in detail? Sure. Um, bonds and shares stocks are not an investment for EB5 purposes. They are passive. So you can't do what you need to do to meet a whole lot of requirements under immigration law. A bond, if you understand its legal background, it is a loan to the company. So you're now investing in a loan in the company, so that cannot qualify. Um, the at-risk, there's one way of getting some level of security out of the project itself, and that is that the project does a first or second mortgage or trust deed over the underlying real estate and secures that back to the lending company into which the EB-5's special purpose entity or NCE has invested EB-5 monies. So in a way, you're indirectly getting a guarantee of the real estate. However, you need to look at that carefully because most times it'll be in second or long later position because the construction loan or the um, major investors would hold the first position. So again, each project must be judged on its own merits and uh, dealt with that way. As far as the overseas projects are concerned, uh, some of them have been there for many, many years, but they never attracted as much as they did, particularly when China really started moving across. They were using Canada a lot before they woke up onto the American idea, but they were also going to places like Australia and other countries uh, whose programs became more visible as time went on, and then they were joined by anything from Portugal to Cyprus to any Grenada, any of these countries where they were offering citizenship or residence for that minimal investment into a house or condo, and therefore you effectively had your guarantee because you had your piece of real estate, and if it maintained its value, you maintained your investment. In the US, back to your condo, you can't be given a house or a condo in a development as a condition of your investment, because that's treated as an asset of the enterprise guaranteeing the return of your funds. So mentioned earlier, you can do it, but it has to be arm's length, not a condition of the investment and uh, open market. We've done it on occasion where we've shown that those people who are investors are part of the family or the club. They can get a 10% discount off the market value, but that's still market value for immigration purposes. So we, we, could, we could talk a little bit about uh, the legislative front. So, David, I know, uh, the, you know there's, been, there's been a lot of disagreements uh, amongst the various parties, you know, different, different stakeholders. I think that for, for a very long time, you know, since inception, a lot of the money, maybe more than 50% of all the money went to California. And that was by, you know, used by a lot of different regional centers, a lot of smaller regional centers, but a, raw, a really large number of the money went to the one state and it was under the radar and nobody really paid attention to it. Then, you know, came the financial downturn in 2007. A lot of large developers started utilizing EB-5 financing and then a lot of money started going to the large real estate projects and in, in New York. And that's when Congress really started paying attention, especially one or two companies were raising a tr tremendous amount of funds through EB-5 and actually taking a lot of the visa bandwidth away from the rest of the country. So I think that's when when all the, the trouble started with, with Congress really paying attention to this. Is why is it that so much money, you know, more than 50, 60 percent is going to New York and really being used as one or two projects and uh, there's not enough funds going to the rest of the country. And I think that's kind of where the 
the trouble started with with people disagreeing on 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 the feature of EV5. And then the other part was the, the issue of gerrymandering. I think people were not happy that a project, for example, Midtown Manhattan or in Beverly Hills could qualify for for target employment area discounted investment, and that created more problems. Maybe uh, David, give you give us your point of view on 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 just all the different ins and outs of the disagreements on the on the legislation and what what has taken us to where we are today. Well, in my discussions with congressmen and senators, everyone I speak to is in favor of the program. It's the nuances that have caused the problem. The leads in the Senate are Senators Grassley and uh, what's his name? Um, Leahy, Leahy, excuse me. And uh, they are invested in making this program work, but they have certain requirements that they want to see in. One of them is the security and integrity of the program so that the investors will not lose their money, which is quite understandable. I think we all are behind that. The other is that they are both from rural-type areas and they're trying to force more of the investment to go into those rural areas and not into so-called high unemployment areas by virtue of the gerrymandering. So their move consistently has been to try and generate these investments into their particular states or states in similar situations. Um, The investors through the projects, want to go for something that might be in a big city, uh, have a location that is visible, that they can visit, not find it's in some small state in some small town. And so they have not been keen to go for those investments, even if some of them have been quite solid. There have also been some agricultural ones that have failed, unfortunately, because of fraud, not because of the projects. Um, so really it's a case of you've got the senators, and the congressman in favor of moving forward in a new uh, version of the EB-5 law. The issue has been these different factions which are in the, basically in the EB-5 industry more than the congressmen themselves and senators themselves. They seem to have come to some kind of compromise internally and then they meet the opposition from outside. As I mentioned when this extension came up in the last couple of days of June, one senator got up and objected um, and it stopped the whole process. Now, before he got up and objected, the Republicans, he was a Republican senator, were in favor of the extension. The Democrats were in favor of the extension. This was a no-brainer. It was going to pass. Nobody had any doubt that there would be a problem. So you never know where these things can, can go. You have a situation where some of the factions don't like what they're seeing. They're not getting all that they want. So they'll lobby a senator in this case. Uh, we have, it appears to be a lobbying effort. And the senator gets up with no, no reason. They don't have to give any reason and simply says, I object. So that expedited process to get the program through before the end of, the Ju- of June failed. As I mentioned, that bill is still floating in Congress, and who knows what will happen in the next several weeks till the end of September. There are very few congressional working days in this time. And David, you've been around since the inception of the EB-5 program, so you've been able to see it evolve over many years. So I think your viewpoint is very important on some of the things that 
maybe uh, they need to consider in terms of making EB-5 a better program or some of the changes that they should consider in terms of the EB-5 program? Well, my pet peeve is the source of funds issue. It's taken to an absolutely ridiculous extent and no common sense business sense is given to the fact that somebody in a country where they can't move money f freely uses a third party, sends it across, and within days it's in the project's bank account, and they claim they can't accept that as sufficient lawful source of funds. Well, you know, there's a certain amount of leeway that needs to be given for the success of the program. And I think under the prior administration, uh, all stops were pulled out to stop everything that they could. We, we used to uh, facetiously say the motto of USCIS was delay and deny and they did that very effectively. Um, we felt it badly, the backlogs are terrible, the production of proven and denied cases fell way off their prior normal levels, and the whole system basically fell apart being in a anti-immigrant mode. With the new Director of Immigration, she made a statement the other day which made it clear that she wants America to be a welcoming country again, that she wants some of the bureaucratic blocks to be removed and she wants things to move more smoothly. This is a tremendous start. However, going down the line to the bottom line of the, the first line examiners, these guys have been in four years of uh, brainwashing, if you wish, it's probably a wrong word, but to find whatever excuse they can to deny. And to change that mode will take a lot of time and a lot of effort and energy because it's like a ship changing direction. It takes a long time for a big ship to turn around. And so we, we expect it. I'm positive. I see EB-5 coming back in a, in a rush. Um, it's a timing issue. That's when everyone can get their ducks in a row and their houses in order. So David, in the last 30 years, you've seen you know, a lot of different changes in EB-5. But there's also been other times in the past that EB-5 has lapsed or there had been a moratorium, I think, one, one time for four months. Can you talk about those other times in the past where EB-5 lapsed or was, you know, had a moratorium and how the market rebounded from that shortly thereafter? Um, late 1990s, there was a couple of companies that had worked out a scheme, and I'll call it scheme deliberately, whereby if an individual put in $50,000 and came up with certain promissory notes for the balance, they could get their EB-5 approved. Um, the balance was fictitious through banks that were shells and this type of thing. And I know that one set of so-called bankers got 10 years in federal prison each um, because this was pure fraud. This caused a chill and a slowing in the whole program, not only from the investor standpoint, but from the immigration service standpoint. And they looked to bring in lots of uh, policies, uh, memoranda and so on. There were the four major cases that were decided, and these all had a tremendous chilling effect on what was going on. Um, however, money ran dry for the developers and so on, and they were looking for money and they saw that this is in fact a viable program. All you have to do is comply with the law, do it correctly and you can get the money in. And so they, these guys did it and they brought in a tremendous amount of money 
completely legally uh, and on, on an above board basis. But again, you had some bad apples and nothing you can do about those. In every profession or industry, there are always bad apples. You've got like Enron. Whoever thought Enron would, uh, would do what it did and, and so on. So it's a case of uh, you can't blame the program. You've got to blame the people that participate in it because there's always people looking for a shortcut or a way around the law. But on the whole, people got wind of the project after the late 1990s, early 1990 uh, 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 to 20, uh, the 20s. And it was uh, a program that built up to the point where the visas started to retrogress because too many were used. There was great shock in the industry when China backed up and then started calculations as we moved forward that Chinese had to wait about 14 years to get their green cards. Well, this is certainly unacceptable. That caused another lapse in the program because the major investor in the program were from China. Most of them came from China. And uh, that was basically cut off. India was cut off for a while, and Vietnam remains cut off as well. The rest of the world are all current today, which means if you get an approval, you can move right through to the next stages, stages two and later stage three, as I'd mentioned. Whereas we have many Chinese sitting with approved I-526s under the regional center program, which are useless unless the program is reinstated. Fortunately, immigration took a position that they'll simply hold on to these cases, whereas they could rightfully have just denied, rejected everything that came in. So they're holding on to those that were in before June 30. If certain cases come in after that date, they will return them, which makes sense. They don't have a program. They can't receipt them. And uh, it'll all come back. So when those cases for Chinese, as the extreme example, um, come back into play with the new regional center authorization, I think there'll be an acceleration of the visa backlog because of the slow number of cases that have been filed over the last year or two, and it will help that backlog. Also, doing away with the country uh, caps, where each country only has a certain number and then they go into retrogression, um, will also help. Uh, it'll help China and it'll help Vietnam. I don't think it'll help other countries because free visas will be taken away from them. But in any event, eventually that'll that will certainly even out. And that's just to be phased in over a period of years when they do it. So that's uh, what I've seen. It's been ups and downs. By the way, the, the late 1990s was triggered by the U.S. consul in Hong Kong. She started seeing these cases and said, this is ridiculous. $50,000 for a $500,000 deal, and they're never, ever going to put more money in. And, uh, you know, from a practical standpoint, everyone is upset that she could possibly dare to challenge this. But she was totally right. And uh, the cases that followed were extreme, and we've been fighting those cases ever since. We recently had a, a great win on, uh, on one of the cases about promissory notes. Immigration had an interpretation that any promissory note you brought had to be secured by assets, and the assets proved as being the investors and from a lawful source. Well, there was finally a court decision on that. A promissory note does not have to be secured. So if you go to a bank, generally it's a known bank, you won't have to prove that the bank's money was clean. If you borrowed from a friend, a relative, or an unknown entity, immigration will ask you 
for proof that the money is clean, but they're not asking for security and the value of the security any longer on regular promissory notes. That was a great step forward. So, David, you, you bring up an interesting point in the, the conversation about fraud. And, you know, the financial press, they love talking about the fraud. There's a guy that uh, is, is backed by a think tank that hates immigration named David North, and he just can't wait to write negative press about EB-5. Any, any small thing that happens, he'll extrapolate it and talk about how, you know, everyone's a fraud and, you know, EB-5, you know, everything's bad and every every project is bad. But, you know, like you said, there are bad apples and there have been projects that have been fraudulent and there have been some outrageous fraudulent projects, but as an overall percentage, they've been very, very small. But, you know, overall, EB-5 has generated, you know, something between 40 to $60 billion of an economic activity, has brought a lot of high-skilled immigrants to the United States that have created businesses and bought property and sent their kids to school and helped generate an, you know, economic activity. And overall, it's been a huge positive. In fact, Department of Commerce put out a report a few years ago about all the great benefits of EV5. But but in integrity measures, I think some of the things that Grassley and Leahy had in integrity measures were specifically to try to make sure that some of this fraud doesn't happen. Two of the big things that were in that bill, one, having construction monitoring, and and two, having, having fund administration. Those two things really cut out the majority of fraud. I mean, look at, look at banks. If a bank is lending a project 100 million, they're not just writing a check for 100 million, they're having construction draws. If you spent $10 million on steel, you have to go show that you spent $10 million on steel, show your receipts, and then they verify it, and then they release the funds. That's how banks get, you know, fraud not to happen. You don't, you don't, you don't ever see, you know, you know, construction banks have that issue, but you do see an EB-5 because, you know, a new commercial enterprise raises the money and floats it to the JCE, which is a project, and sometimes those controls are in place, and then they go buy Ferraris and yachts, and it's on the financial press, and David North has a field day, you know? And then the same thing with, with the fund administrator. Fund administrator keeps control of where the money is flowing and where they're going, and they keep an eye on it to make sure that the money is going the right places. So, unfortunately, these are two things that were really big in the Grassley-Leahy bill that didn't pass. But I think overall the industry agrees with these things. But, you know, again, there hasn't been that much fraud as a com comparatively to the amount of good things that happened with EB-5. But, but those little amounts of fraud that have happened, these integrity measures will cut that out. Could you, I'd love to hear your point of view and what you think about those integrity measures and what other integrity measures we can incorporate to, to really optimize the program so those, those, even those small instances of fraud don't ever happen again. Well, um, I mentioned source of funds. That's an integrity measure. And that one, I believe, went overboard. That needs to be eased up. The others that you mentioned, I think, are essential to the success of the program. It does create extra burdens on the developers and the investor um, management people, but it does give an investor greater confidence, and therefore you'll get more people wanting to invest. So I see that as working. I also see one of the problems is the lack of visa numbers. That's causing tremendous problem if they would open some visas or change the definition of who can get the visas, we would uh, have a much better position. There was a case heard the other day where we were trying to get only the actual investor to count against the visa quota, not including the dependent family, but the court found against and said you have to count them all. And that was unfortunate because that would have given a great boost to the numbers available. So now we have to rely on Congress to give more numbers. And that was one of the objections that came in from the 
outside folks um, who were objecting to the program. They said we have to have more more visas, and they were trying to hold out for that. That is an extremely difficult thing to get through Congress, who for years have been anti-giving any more visa numbers, because over a million green cards are given out a year, and they feel that's quite enough. Um, on integrity, you've got the integrity of the individuals as well. How do you know that you're not bringing in someone who's totally dishonest, a terrorist, or so on? Well, this is very carefully screened. The financial side is done through Office of Foreign Asset Control, OFAC. Uh, we, as a matter of course, review the OFAC records on every investor we start with to see if that person or his company is a listed person or company. That's an added precaution on our side to keep the case from getting denied later. Um, we have found that these people generally, and I'd say in particular Chinese, have a very interesting model. Their method of, uh, their mode of operation is generally the wife will do the investment. Husband and wife will arrive with their child, usually one child, sometimes more. They go into a high-end neighborhood. They would purchase a house for cash. They put cars in the drive, furniture in the house. Then the husband would go back to China to make more money and the wife would live happily on his capital and principal and in the paid-for house while the child gets educated because they regard the U.S. education system as the best in the world for their families. Um, examples in our area, we've seen in Newport Beach, one Chinese guy bought a house for $12 million for cash overlooking the golf course and the ocean. So not, not bad. Uh, he put three Mercedes in the driveway. He hired several housekeepers and gardeners and then he left. So the $500,000 he put in to stimulate the economy was a drop in the bucket compared to all the other things that he was doing that were positive. And he certainly wasn't going to be a dishonest to the system. He wasn't even going to be here. So that's a, one of the integrity issues that I think people lose sight of, that the people coming in generally are good people. The, the other thing I would add, David, I think at 500000 you know, the program was very popular, obviously. I think in 2014 or 15, we had almost 14,000 applications, way more than the, you know, the actual visa applications. But then when they changed the program to 900,000, you know, the, the, the numbers went down close to zero. I mean, in the first quarter of, quarter of 2020, I think there was only eight applications overall in the whole country where, you know, that number went down from 14,008. So that, that tells you that, you know, 500,000 was probably... Uh, the, not enough, and 900,000 obviously was way too much. Now, there are other factors, and the other factors are I think a lot of people were turned off by the fact that, you know, the U.S. program has a lot of delays and processing times are slow, but there's also the sticker shock of moving from 500,000 to 900,000. But I know in, in some of the, you know, negotiations behind the scene, there's been a price of 200,000 price differential that's been discussed, and I've heard 700,000 for, you know, TEA, or and 900,000 for non-TEA. What are your thoughts on, on those price differentials and maybe bringing the price down from 900000 and latest legislation or the latest um, agency rule? My first point would be that if there were visa numbers available, I think you would see an influx, particularly from countries like China, at the 900 level. So the visa numbers and the slow processing by USCIS is a lot of what caused the blockage. Also, you've got political relationships between the US and China. 
You've got the Chinese government tightening unbelievably on allowing funds to leave the country. And this combination created a perfect storm. That would be your um, anti-immigrant sentiment, the political situation, the tightening of the money, immigration slowness, immigration's method of adjudicating, trying to find reasons to deny, all created more of a blockage than the 900,000. However, I do agree that the other countries could have invested more. And we're seeing a lot of those countries that are running into political issues now have started to come through and have started investing at the 900 level. Um, I believe that if it comes in at a lower amount, I'd heard 800,000 and a million, you just mentioned 700,000 and $900,000. Well, any of those will be helpful towards attracting more investors. Any kind of discount anyone can get, they will take. They will drive across the town to get a dollar, uh, a 10 cents free, a reduced price on their gallon of gas. So people look for reductions. And this is a, a sale at 500,000 today during this open period. People should jump at it if they are truly wanting to come to the US. This is the time. They mustn't wait for it. And I see that that will move up and you'll find a lot more uh, cases going through now at the 500 level that will stimulate the loss of cases that we had earlier in the year, which has the other effect of reducing the backlog of visa numbers because not so many are piling in at the back of the queue. Well, David, it's been wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us and, and giving us your insights. As always, it's always been a pleasure speaking with you and thank you for for being here and, and giving us your insights. Well, thank you for, for the invitation and allowing me to participate. I've known and worked with both of you for many years and it's been a, a very positive experience. Thank you. Thank you so much, David. To contact the Investment Migration Report, please email Priya Malik at Priya, P-R-E-E-Y-A at stepglobalgroup.com or at Team Vaziri at the Investment Migration Report at gmail.com or connect to our pages on LinkedIn and YouTube. Thank you for listening.